0: now I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. This morning we read verses 1 through 15 of Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Marm as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young woman who prepared it quickly, a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door before him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you after this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful to you that you are a God who can do the impossible. While we are limited in what we can do, we recognize the clear teaching from your word is that you are not. Would you help us, though, Father, in the ways in which we live and demonstrate unbelief in that fact, where we limit you to our own understanding? where we limit you to our own imagination, where we limit you to our own ability. Broaden our minds towards you this morning as we see the God who can do anything. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Lord of the Impossible. There are things in this world that are impossible for us. You don't have to think very hard to imagine what some of these things are. If I were to tell you today to go outside and jump over this building, you would say that's impossible. If I were to say go and walk to the moon, you would say that is impossible. As we age, it seems more and more things become impossible to us. As children, we dream about doing things that are far beyond our own capabilities. But as wisdom sets in, we begin to recognize our own limitations. And because of those limitations, at times it can be hard for us to imagine that that there is nothing impossible for God. Now outside of maybe a few in this room who are seeking the things of the Lord today and, and you're just curious about what it is churches believe and, and what Christians hold to be true, I would say most of us in here and watching online today would affirm this doctrinal statement, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And that is true. Nothing is impossible for for God. However, our unbelief often shows. I mean, you say, wait, pastor, I, I, don't, I don't have unbelief. I would, I would certainly affirm that to be true. Yes, we say things with our mouths that sometimes we contradict by our actions. We say there is nothing impossible for God, and we say we trust God to do the impossible in our lives and in our church and in our world. And yet, once we have said those things to be true, we go about our lives as if we need to handle what God alone can handle, that we need to provide what God alone can provide. This morning, we slow down somewhat, taking only 15 verses, Because these 15 verses, this appearance from the Lord to Abraham and his conversation with him and at the end of the text with Sarah paints an incredible picture of our God who can do anything. And it would be helpful for us this morning to just sit on that truth for a moment to dwell in our hearts and in our minds on the fact that we serve the Lord of the impossible. And this text begins with the Lord appearing in bodily form to Abraham. Look at the first three verses. And the Lord appears to him, appeared to him by the oaks of Marm. So he's still where he was, as we've seen in the previous chapters. And he sat at the, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Verse 1 serves as a summary of the entire chapter where the narrator, the biblical author, is telling us what we can expect. He's telling us something that is actually revealed progressively to Abraham as the conversation continues. But the author wants us to go in eyes wide open into chapter 18, that that we can know what to expect as we approach this story. And here's what we can expect, that the Lord himself, God Almighty, appeared to Abraham. I find it interesting in verse 1 that Abraham, having already lived in Canaan, now the land that was promised to him, the land that God showed him as he called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia, and go there to this land that God had promised to him after living for now what amounts to a few decades in that land is still living in a tent. Abraham has still not settled He has still not put down roots. He has still not claimed that land to be his own. And he is sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham is doing what so many others would have done in the days before air conditioning and still do around the world in those places. When it's hot, you go outside. And so this is, verse 1, both serves as an introduction to what the narrator wants us to know about the text, but also just an introduction into the, the day that this happens. This is just a normal day. Now, when we consider the previous chapters, we recognize that God has appeared to Abraham in vision, in, in chapter 16, a very clear vision where, where God uh, speaks to Abraham and then also shows himself not in bodily form, but in the form of flame, making this covenant sure with Abraham. In chapter 17, where God speaks to Abraham and give him instructions about the covenant, but chapter 18 is going to be different. We're going to see God in bodily form. And we're going to see God appear to Abraham in this way, but this is just another day in the life of Abraham. It wasn't a special day. He was just sitting outside his tent because it was hot. And he, verse 2 tells us, he lifts up his eyes and looks, and here are three men standing in front of him. Now, they must have been standing some way away because we're told that he runs in verse 2 to go and meet them. But we know here where the the author gives us a little bit of clue of what's happening because he lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, the three men were standing in front of him. the, The language of the text is that the men just appeared. Now, can you imagine Abram sitting here outside of his tent and, and likely there would have been times where visitors would have come and Abram, Abraham would have been able to look far off and see these men walking from a distance and would have eventually been able to discern who it was coming to visit. But now in this case, these men didn't walk from far off. They just appeared before him. They weren't right in front of him. They were a ways away. And, and Abraham here, 99 years old, and not only 99 years old, that's not the only important thing to keep in your mind here, but well-respected, the patriarch of the family runs. There's not too many 99-year-olds that are running anymore. If you can make it to such an old age, you have earned the right to sit and have people come to you. Particularly when you are the head of the household, the patriarch. Everyone respects and answers to Abraham, and yet when he sees this men, these men, he has enough recognition of who they are that he runs from the door of his tent and bows himself before them in the earth. Then in verse 3, he says, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, Verse 3 gives us an indication of, of the starting point that Abraham has with this encounter with God. Is that he uses a phrase that is translated in our Bibles, Lord. The Hebrew phrase is Adonai. But he uses a version of the word Adonai that was not most often ascribed to God. It was the typical word for Lord. Later in the text, Sarah will use the same word to describe her husband. And yet we need to recognize that that this is the beginning of a journey. But we, being able to look at this with, with full knowledge, because the narrator has intended us to, we know who it is that Abraham is encountering. This is God. And this raises a very interesting question. One that I get often, one that I got when, when I said we were going to start in Genesis. There were people who would come and would ask about some of these encounters. One we've already considered, Melchizedek, where I specifically said that was not God, it was not Jesus. He was a man who was born and died, and the New Testament affirms that, and we should affirm that as well. But then there is this instance in Genesis 18 and another later uh, with the descendants of Abraham where we see God take bodily form. And here's the question that I so often get. Is this Jesus? Do we here in Genesis 18 have Jesus Because when we continue reading this, both in this week's text and in next week's text, here's what we're going to see. One of these men stood out as different from the other two. One of these men is God in bodily form, and two of these men are angels. Eventually, they will separate. Two going on to Sodom, one staying there with Abraham before leaving. So this man who is the central figure, this God in bodily form, should we see this as the pre-incarnate Christ? Now, I, I try to steer clear of doctrinal words. I'm going to have to use several today, so I just want you to bear with me. In the Old Testament, when we see God appear, in theology terms, this is known as a theophany. Theo meaning God, phany appearance, so the appearance of God. And this happens in multiple times, multiple places. We've already seen theophanies in Genesis where God appeared in the form of light to Abraham. He appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. All of those are theophanies. They're not always bodily. In the New Testament, after the ascension of Christ, when Jesus appears to people, it is known as a Christophany, meaning the appearance of Christ, as he does with uh, the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. The question here is, is a theophany and a Christophany the same thing? Should we think that this is Jesus? My answer is going to be both yes and no. Let me read a text from the New Testament before I explain that to you. In John 1, 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'm not going to fully explain this text today because in a matter of just a few weeks, we're going to break from our series in Genesis. And for three weeks surrounding Christmas, consider uh, what's known as the prologue of John's gospel and this verse being one of them, and so I'm going to preach this verse in December and give full attention to it. But for our purposes this morning, here's what we need to understand is true from John 1, 14, that something very special and specific happened when Mary conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our understanding of the pre-incarnation, which is what's described here in John 1.14. So before Jesus is, the word is made flesh in the virgin's womb. So our understanding of a pre-incarnation theophany, particularly those in bodily form like here in Genesis 18, must leave room for the great miracle that is the incarnation of Christ. I would contend that the incarnation of Christ is the greatest miracle ever performed by God, greater even than the creation of the universe itself, the melding of eternal God with flesh, the act of holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle in redemptive history. So don't sell that miracle short by thinking that Jesus has sometimes always been in the form of a man and appears here and there throughout Scripture. Jesus took on flesh. It was something he did for us. So is this Jesus appearing to Abraham? Yes. Insofar as Jesus is God. God. And has always been God for all eternity. However, is this the same body of Jesus that walked around Nazareth and was crucified in Jerusalem? I would say, and there would be those who may disagree with me. No, it is not. I would contend that that body didn't exist until the time that the Holy Spirit made Mary to be with child. So yes, I can affirm that this is God in bodily form and because Jesus is God, then this is Jesus. But I could also say that this is not yet the Jesus that the New Testament writes about in his humanity because that event has not taken place yet. And if you feel like I'm splitting hairs this morning, it's okay. There are a few people in here though that that was very interesting too and I'm going to leave it at that. Here's what we need to know. God himself, having already appeared to Abraham in several different forms previously, some of which have not been described to us, we just know that God appeared to him, now appears in flesh, temporal flesh to Abraham. And let's see what Abraham does after running to them and bowing down and before them. Verse four, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. That is, verse 4 describes the very basic thing that needs to happen. For Abraham to do what was expected of him in his present culture, the very basic thing to do is, number one, bring water for them to drink, and number two, bring water for them to uh, wash their feet and to give them a place of shade. This is so common when we... uh, work in West Africa. It's exactly what families there still today still do. When you go visit someone, they are going to bring you water to drink, and they're going to provide for you a place to sit in the shade because it's hot. So thousands of years later, there are still people practicing this very basic cultural norm. But we're going to see Abraham go far beyond the cultural norm. He says, here you rest, wash your feet, here's some water, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now stop at the end of verse 5 just briefly because this is, this is just an interesting story to me. Abraham does the basics. And then in an effort, Abraham feels like, hey, I need to keep these guys here a little bit. So he says, how about I bring you, and notice what it says, a morsel of bread. How about I, have you guys eaten you do, I mean, people are going, maybe not this year. Okay, sorry. In normal times, during the holidays, people just pop by, right? That's kind of what people do. People stop by. You know, we're, we're not really a visiting culture anymore of so many others around the world are. We're not. But when we get to the holidays, it, it becomes a little more common for people to say, hey, why don't you just pop by? Right? You just, just stop by the house for a little while. And, uh, and, and what are you going to do, right? You're going to have something there. Hey, you want something to eat? You know, I've, I've got, you know, I've got something baked. I've got some cookies. You want, you, want, you want something to eat? That's what Abraham does. And I just find it interesting uh, in light of what's about to happen that he says, stay here while I bring you a morsel of bread. Because let's watch what he actually does. And Abraham went quickly into the tent. So, Abraham's excited, 99 year old patriarch. He's pumped up, these guys have come to visit him. And so, I mean, how many 99 year olds do anything quickly, right? Abraham's already ran. You'd think he's tired. He's not. He runs quick, right? Quickly goes in. And then he communicates that urgency to his wife, Sarah, where we see the word quick. Huh? This is a big deal, Sarah. Three seas of fine flour, knead it and make a cake. 3C is a fine flour, folks, is two gallons of flour, roughly, okay? That's that's roughly what this uh, comes to. And if if you follow standard baking practices for a loaf of bread, Abraham tells his wife to make 11 loaves of bread. Knead it and make some cakes. And Abraham, verse 7, ran, here it is again, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Abraham tells his wife, you go bake 11 loaves of bread. I mean, roughly, maybe it was 12. Then he goes out to the fields, like you find a really good calf, kill it, slaughter the whole thing, cook the whole thing. You would think this is a feast for the entire household, but it's not. And the biblical authors is is clear with this, that at the end of verse 8, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So he's tempted them to stay with a morsel of bread. But what Abraham ultimately does is he brings out the entire kitchen. I mean, an entire cow for three men. Curds and milk are prepared for him. So it's meats and cheeses and breads. Abraham recognizes he is in the presence of something great, and he throws everything he has at that greatness as if to say, you stay as long as I could possibly keep you here. We've so often gone to Hebrews 11 in our series here in Genesis because Hebrews 11 traces this line of faith and how people of the Old Testament um, had their relationship with God credited to them by their faith. And shortly after that in Hebrews 13, he's now turned inward. The author of Hebrews has turned inward talking about how we're supposed to live. And this what he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, You have to imagine that the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, has in his mind these Old Testament saints. The one that he talks about the most being Abraham and the one who entertained angels and God himself by showing his hospitality. Now this is not a sermon on hospitality, but it bears mentioning. The people of God will be hospitable. You have to wonder if... We have become so busy in our lives and so distracted by all of the things that we have to do that if God and angels appeared on our doorstep, would we even answer the door? I mean, at our house, we got one of them digital video doorbells. I can see you coming before you even tell me you're there. And we've become so secluded and and, and so you know, walled off. And listen, coronavirus has made, it's just fed into that, has not it? Because we, we've kind of developed ourselves into wanting our home to kind of be this private castle and, and nobody ever entering it. And now we've been given permission and even encouragement by the government to do just that. And so I'm not pushing back against coronavirus restrictions this morning, but I am saying this. When you can, show hospitality. When you can, treat people as Abraham treated the Lord and his angels here. Above and beyond in generosity should be the mark of every Christian. And no, we're very likely not entertaining angels in our homes, but we are instructed by the Apostle Paul to do everything as unto the Lord. And this is what it looks like to do hospitality unto the Lord. Second, the Lord demonstrates his omniscience, or his uh, omnipotence and omniscience to Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to define those two words for us here in a moment. For those who may be new, or you may be joining us and you say, You've used big words today. Tell me what they mean. I'm I'm going to do so here in a moment. Look with me in verse 9. They said to him, So they're heeding, right? All this stuff, which, by the way, this is the only time we see the Lord. In a, in a theophany, in, a, in an appearance in bodily form, eat outside of the incarnation of Jesus where he eats with his disciples. It's the only time. So this, is, this is rare. So they're eating, and they look up at their host who's standing under the tree just excited to be there, and they ask you a question, where's, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. He should have said, I made her bake a dozen loaves of bread. She's tired. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, God has already told Abraham this in the previous chapter. He's already said, about this time next year, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him Isaac. But he's now come in bodily form, and he's saying this out loud. He's not speaking directly to Abraham. He's saying this for Sarah's benefit, which is why he asked where she is. And she is, while inside the tent, obviously not far enough away, even though she is hidden from the sight of man, she is still listening. So we get the idea that Sarah is somewhat eavesdropping on this conversation. Having heard her name, she turns the attention and she hears what happens. She hears what the Lord has said. Then, in a, next time, This time next year, Sarah will, shall have a son. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old. I'm emphasizing that on purpose. Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Sorry for those that may consider yourselves old for me emphasizing that word three times, but it's important that we see it appear in both verses 11, 12, and 13. In the the English language, all three of those words appear identical. In the Hebrew text, all three words are different with the same root. That what the biblical author is doing is he is emphasizing what is impossible, He's wanting us to recognize that it is completely impossible what the Lord is saying. The fact that they use the term or this root word for old in three consecutive verses and give us a truthful statement about Sarah's menopausal state in verse 11 reinforces the impossibility of what God is saying will happen. Now, We've been dwelling on this idea for the last two weeks. We've we've seen uh, Abraham uh, just on on multiple occasions either, either question God about what he's promising or try to fix it on his own because he just doesn't see any other way around it. Him being 99, his wife being 89. We're old. And it's not only Abraham saying, They're old. It's now Sarah saying that Abraham is old, and it's the biblical author here reaffirming to us, the reader, these people are old. There's an emphasis here on what is impossible, but God has already revealed something to us. In chapter 17, when God appears to Abraham and Promises that in a year's time directly to him that he will have a child and institutes circumcision, which we saw last week. We're told this in verse 1 When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. It is at that word that old didn't matter anymore. It's at that word that historic barrenness didn't matter anymore. It was at that word that the menopausal state of Sarah did not matter anymore. When God affirms that he is God Almighty, what he is affirming and what he is demonstrating here is that he is omnipotent. Omnipotence is God's ability to do all his holy will. If you're looking for a definition, that's a good one for that word. It is his ability to do all his holy will. It is not an answer to the question that people like to pose and think themselves really smart. Well, if God can do anything, can he create a rock that he can't pick up? Well, that's just dumb, okay? And if you want to know the answer to that, the answer to that is no. But when we think about the omnipotence of God, here's how we need to think about it that God is able to do everything his will purposes to do. We can't say that God can do anything. You say, wait, did you just say God can't do anything? Yes, I just said God can't do anything because God can't sin. James tells us God can't sin. He's not tempted by evil, nor can he do evil. God can't not keep his promise. If God promises to do something, he'll can do. He he'll do it, which means that he, the inverse is also true. He can't not keep it. God is always faithful to himself. And so we have to view the omnipotence of God through our understanding of the divine nature of God, that he sovereignly works in our world, and that sovereign work of God in his creation is limited by nothing other than himself. That when God says something will happen, it will happen. When God says he can do something, he can do it. The prophet Jeremiah affirms this for us in Jeremiah 32. He says, "Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Some 1,500 years or more after the life of Abraham, the prophet Jeremiah answers the question because it is certainly a rhetorical question. That we read in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Jeremiah answers that rhetorical question, nothing is too hard for you. And he appeals to nature itself. If you can create this entire universe, certainly, God, you can do anything. This is how, where our minds should go. Just 18 chapters now removed from the creation account where we see sovereign, holy, almighty God create something from nothing create an entire universe that declares his glory, all existing for and from and through him. If he can do that, then surely he can do anything he purposes, even give old, old, old Abraham and Sarah a child. If we fast forward to the New Testament, there's a prophet, some would say the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament. His name is John, and John the Baptist in the wilderness baptizing people causes enough stir that there's some of the religious elite known as Pharisees and Sadducees come out to the wilderness, some even seeking to be baptized, and John's having none of that, and he calls them vipers, and he says this to them, And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. I learned something on our trip uh, almost two years ago to Israel. We're going to go back a year from January if you'd like to go. It opened your eyes to so many things in the scripture, and here's one of the things that opened my eyes. Do you know how many stones there are in this little bitty country of Israel? Millions. Millions. I mean, as far, everybody that went, some of these down here went, they're all nodding. Because it just stands out to you. It's just millions upon millions of stones, little, big, they're just everywhere. Every, the whole country, littered with stones. And so now, anytime I read about stones in the scripture, like, the very rocks will cry out, right? You're like, man, that would be loud because of all the rocks. in here, John looks and sees all these stones. Like, God. God could raise up from these stones children of Abraham because nothing is impossible for God. God can raise up children of Abraham from any source he pleases because he is God Almighty. He is omnipotent. He can do his entire holy will. He is able. And so if he can raise up children of Abraham from stones, he can put in Sarah's womb a child then verse 15 but Sarah denied it so God says why'd you laugh why'd she laugh and so you can kind of see Sarah poke her head out of the tent and say I didn't laugh she's scared The Bible affirms that she was afraid and he turns to her and says no but you did laugh The Lord's not angry here. This isn't an admonition. You'll remember in chapter 17, if you were here last week, Abraham laughed. This is why Isaac has his name, because it means laughter. Both of his parents have laughed now at the idea that at 99 and 89, they would bear a child. This is demonstrating to us not only the omnipotence of God, but the omniscience. Omniscience means that God knows all things actual and possible, that God doesn't only know what's before him, God knows all things everywhere. God didn't have to hear Sarah in the tent to know that Sarah laughed. God knew that Sarah laughed before he created the universe. He sees and knows all. Nothing is hidden from him. The psalmist Here's what the psalmist tells us. Not only is God all-knowing of all things before they happen, everywhere, for all time, but we don't understand how that works because we're finite and he's infinite. Our minds are limited and his is entirely unlimited. So while I can tell you what it means that God knows all things I can affirm it is true because the Bible says it is true. And here in this small little way, the Lord demonstrates that having not heard Sarah laugh, but knowing she did. Having not heard that laughter proceed from this 89 year old woman's mouth, God still says, oh, but you did. And just watch Abraham, just watch Sarah, because in a year I'll be back. And in a year... There will be a 90-year-old Sarah bouncing a newborn baby boy on her knee. So what? Does my life and our church, I'm intending this to be individual and corporate, does my life and our church reflect the truth that we serve the Lord who can do anything? As I began this sermon today, I told you we would most in this room and joining us virtually today would affirm Yes, we serve a God that can do anything. Yes, we serve a God that knows everything. Yes, there's nothing too hard for God. We would say that we believe that. But the question is, when we look into our lives and we, when we look into our church, does our lives and church reflect that truth? Do we live as if we serve a God who can do anything? Do we as a church function as if we serve a God who can do anything? Or have we figured out how to put God in our little container that that does some things for us and, and that we can rightly describe and understand, are we seeking to live a life and a corporate in a way corporately that says we don't understand how God does what he does, but we know that he does incredible things. And we will believe him to do incredible things, both for me personally and for our church. Before we started this series in Genesis, we spent about eight months in the book of Ephesians, And right there in the middle of Ephesians, Ephesians is really easily divided into two chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, and 6. And he ends really that first section the Apostle Paul does with this statement. Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than All that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church family, we must recognize that God is working in this world to bring about ends that best glorify himself and exalt his son, Jesus. We, his church, are redeemed for this purpose and then we are invited to join in with him to accomplish it. And we don't know how God is accomplishing these things around the world. We don't know how God is accomplishing these things in our church. We don't know how God is accomplishing these things in our lives. But what we must not only affirm to be true but live as if they are true is that God can do it. Here's what's true. There are likely people sitting here or watching with us right now who would say, that's all great for you religious people who have your lives together. But if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew the things that I've said, if you only knew where I've been, you would know this to be true about me, preacher. God can't save me. The the power of Jesus on the cross may be powerful for you, it may be powerful for your church, but God can't save me, listen to me. I want to appeal to you, friend. He can. It's not too hard for him. And so if you're outside the people of God today, accept this invitation to come and be a part of the people of God by turning to him in faith alone as he saves you, because he is able to do that. And church family, our challenge to us today is this. Let's dream big dreams. Let's hope great hopes. Let's not limit what God can do in and through us to our own imagination. Let's not be satisfied with our own level of sanctification and our own, meaning our own level of Christ-likeness. First and foremost, let's recognize that even if you've been walking with God for decades, there's still work to be done. And you don't get to appeal to your old age like Abraham and Sarah did and said, well, I am who I am now. No, God can still continue to do a work in you, making him into the image of your son. And for us, We continue to look together into the future and say, God, how can you use us? Limited as we may seem by restrictions around us, limited as we may seem by resources and by manpower, none of that matters to God because anything he wants to do in and through us, he will do if we will only follow in faith. Believing that he is the God of the impossible. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the one sitting here watching with us who who would say, I've I've never never believed, I've always thought that that I was just too bad. I've just done too much. I've I've been too sinful. Oh God, would you save them? Because by your power, there is nothing that you cannot overcome to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and redeem a life. I pray for us as a church. Help us, God, to not limit you. Help us, God, to recognize that you are accomplishing your goal for your glory and the exaltation of your son, Jesus, and you are allowing us to be a part of it, just like you allowed Abraham and Sarah to be the beginning of a holy people, we now, the descendants of that holy people, say, God, continue to do those same miraculous things in our midst, we ask, as you use us for your glory here and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.